Recently, I had a man share with me the story of a gentleman who had bought a painting. This man had gone out and tried to find the largest painting of Jesus Christ that he could find. And then when he found it, he promptly purchased it and brought it home. But after trying to get it in through the front door, the side door, the back door, he then tried all of the windows, but he just could not get it into the house. So he called upon a team of engineers and architects who did everything they could to figure out how to get this painting in the house, but to no avail. And finally, one of them stepped up and said, sir, you can't put this painting in the home. You have to build the home around the painting. Too often, this is how we live our lives. We build them up, and once they are fully constructed for, to our liking, then we try to fit Jesus into it. And so often what happens is Christ becomes nothing more than just a decoration. That example serves a lot of different purposes, not just illustrating our personal lives, but can serve as an illustration of how some will treat the church as well. Sometimes we build the church that we want, or we envision what we would call the ideal church, and then we seek to find that ideal church. And once that church is found, or once that church is complete, then we try to insert Christ. But because the church is the body of Christ, it must be constructed around Christ. When we build the house of God around the Son of God, we begin to see God's will is more perfect than man's will that his will is more fulfilling than our will. The more we live in the will of God, the more we live in the grace of God. And as we look upon our text this morning, that point will become very evident. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message I've titled, The Forgotten Leader, The Deacon's Gain. This will bring us to the last verse, the end of our teaching on deacons, as we look primarily at verse 13. But I want us to read beginning at verse 8, and so please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. I'll say it again. The more we live in the will of God, the more we live in the grace of God. When we obey the Lord, when we do what he has commanded, we often think that it entitles us to God's blessing. We tend to think that because we've done what God has asked us to do, he is then obligated to give us something we desire or obligated to show some sort of favor on our lives. 
First off, God is not obligated to us in any way, except in those ways in which he is bound to by his character. And as an example, what I mean by that is, for example, we are not entitled to have God be good to us. We don't deserve his goodness, and so therefore he must be good to us. But rather, God is good to us because it is in his nature to be good. Therefore, if he treated us poorly or if he treated us contrary to that goodness, it would be contrary to who he is, and thus he wouldn't be God. So when I say that the more we live in the will of God, the more we live in the grace of God, it's not that we experience God's grace more simply because he owes it to us as payment for our obedience. Instead, what I want to convey and what I want to try to say is that when we obey God, the more we experience who God is. The more we see who he is in our lives just as a natural consequence of how he has organized and orchestrated things. That's just part of his natural design that he has implemented. As an example, if I love my neighbor, as God has told me to do, I will experience the Lord, not because God must reward me, and maybe not even because my neighbor will like me back or love me back. In fact, my neighbor may hate me until hell envelops his soul. But I will still experience the Lord's blessing just by being obedient. The Lord will fill my heart with contentment by the knowledge that I couldn't do anything more than what he has called me to do, which was to love my neighbor. He will give me peace that by following his words in my life, the Lord is bringing to fruition his will in my life. And we even receive the blessing of joy, knowing that our obedience shows God is effectuating his purpose in somebody else's life as well. These are just a few examples of God's blessing simply by loving our neighbor. And none of those is dependent upon who the neighbor is. None of those is dependent upon who we are. It all comes because of who God is. A natural consequence of following God's will is to experience the blessing of God. That's the principle we see in our text this morning. Verse 13 of 1 Timothy 3 reads, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So those deacons who serve well will find themselves the recipients of God's blessing, according to this text. Again, that is merely just a part of the Lord's design. When people follow him, they experience him and his blessing. Because everything has been created and has been created and ordered out of who he is and out of his goodness and out of his kindness and out of his wisdom and out of his perfection, when we follow that creation and follow that order, it should cause us to experience that goodness and kindness and wisdom and perfection. If we're claiming to do the work of God but not experiencing the blessings of him, it's oftentimes because we're not doing God's work God's way. But when we do God's will, When we engage in God's work God's way, we find ourselves on the undeserving end of his favor. This morning that is played out with deacons, that when they fulfill their position before God, they will find and gain a standing before the people of the church and the people of the world. 
so I want you to note first the deacon's position before God. The deacon's position before God. Again, the word of God reads in our text, for those deacons who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. As promised here, deacons will find themselves again on the receiving end of the Lord's blessing. Those blessings are not guaranteed. God is not compelled to grant them, nor is someone entitled to those blessings merely because they hold the title of deacon. There's a qualifier when the verse says, for those who serve well as deacons. Those who serve well find themselves in good standing and with a great confidence, it says. However, for those deacons who do not serve well, a natural consequence is that their testimony is broken, hindering or limiting both their standing and their confidence. That means we must understand what does it mean to serve well. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. As we learned about three weeks ago, Acts chapter 6 is where we're first introduced to the deacon's ministry. Though the word or the title is not used, the passage still gives a clear indication of the deacon's work. It's similar to the concept of Trinity. Though we don't see that word ever used in Scripture, the concept of the Trinity is very well presented in Scripture. That's what we see here. So we come here to Acts chapter 6 to learn about the ministry of the deacon. And so I want you to read with me, starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will point to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry to the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Remember that a deacon is stewards the resources of God. Stewards those resources that God has given the church to fulfill his purposes. This primarily consisted of, at that time, serving the church by serving the people. Helping them to ensure that their daily needs were met through the distribution of food and clothing, and even sometimes money. Later on, it took on the task of stewarding the church's facilities after the church began to own property in the third century. What we see then is a deacon's role is very practical in nature. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that the men were taken up in order to help alleviate the day-to-day -day responsibilities of caring for the physical needs of the church. This is in line with the title deacon, which simply means servant. Their work, though, though it may be very practical, is still also very spiritual in nature. 
Because what they're doing is enabling the elders to care for the body of Christ, as they're called to do, as we talked about several weeks ago. They're relieving the elders of these tertiary responsibilities so that they may be freed up for the ministry of preaching the word, passing time in prayer, and attending to the oversight of God's people. By this phrase in, in verse 3 of Acts 6, where it says, whom we will appoint to this duty, it shows that the deacons are accountable to the elders. In this case, it was actually the apostles. They were appointed by them, and they were subject to their authority. But the two worked together. They complemented one another. A deacon who serves well enables an elder to serve well, and an elder who serves well enables a deacon to serve well. That's how the body of Christ should function. It's the design that is conveyed by 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and the discussion of God's distribution of spiritual gifts, that each person is using their gift to enable the, another person to use his or her gift. Not everyone is gifted and not everyone is called to be an elder. Not everyone is gifted and not everyone is called to be a deacon. But there is wisdom in being able to discern one's own personal gifting and calling living it out according to the Lord's call. It enables the church to function as one body. At the same time, if one doesn't wisely discern that he is not called, it can hinder the function of the body. And this is what we see in that discussion of elders. If they're called and have discerned that calling, they should be functioning together. I think of it like a marriage. After two people have been married for a length of time, their gifts and their interests become very evident and the husband and the wife working together with their gifts and according to their calling from God, they, they support one another to fulfilling what the Lord has instructed them to do. It's interesting because you can watch somebody with the loss of a spouse, and for some people it's very disorienting. But it's disorienting because usually they had their defined roles and tasks. One person might focus on some administrative, like paying the bills. The other might focus on other house things. And so when you lose one, because they supported one another in that work, it becomes disorienting. There is much that I rely upon Bethany for. She not only takes care of the children and their schooling, but frequently I call upon her to do things for me. Many of you will receive phone calls from her because I've asked her to call you. By doing that, it saves me time, and sometimes it allows me to make a priority of other things or people that need to get done in that moment. It also helps me avoid the phone because I just don't like talking on the phone. <laughs> I can't hear. But the things she does enables the things I do. That's what we see with the role of deacons. So a deacon who serves well is one who fulfills his call. And in doing so helps the church function as a church. What you should start to see here is who the deacon is. He is a servant by that title, servant. But he's a servant who acts as a representative of the church. And specifically, he represents the church's ministry of compassion to the most vulnerable of the church, to those who most need it. James describes true religion as pure and undefiled before God the Father. It is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's what the deacon is doing. He's just fulfilling James. 
But he's not only the church's representative of the church's ministry of compassion, but more importantly, if he's been called, he is God's ambassador. And so he is God's representative of God's ministry of compassion. Frequently, the role of deacon is looked upon as a lesser role because it is thought that an elder probably has greater impact. Some deacons then may strive to be an elder, even though they've not been called or equipped for it. At the same time, churches may overlook the role of a deacon and elevate the role of an elder. And that's why I've titled this The Forgotten Leader. But the deacon serves a vital function in the church and in God's design of the church. By title, he is a servant. He serves the church and its practical needs, but more importantly, he is a servant of God. When the Lord equips someone, he has done so with a purpose, that the individual would be equipped to serve God's master plan and to not use that gift or to not allow someone to use that gift denies God's authority to orchestrate his people and plan as he pleases. And it denies God's perfection in being able to even determine how best to use people to accomplish his will. The deacon may serve the church, but he is a servant of God. And the deacon who serves well does so by remembering his position before God, his position to serve the people of God because of his position before God. That position before God then leads to these other following two points. In the Christian life, there are consequences. You can live for self or you can live for the Savior. The one who lives for self will find himself under God's judgment. The one who lives for the Savior will find himself under God's blessing. I hope I've established that already. This is, again, a principle we see for the deacons. The deacon who serves inadequately will stand before God and offer an account for his leadership or lack thereof. But the one who serves from his position under God and for God, serving well, will find himself the recipient of the Lord's blessings, which are outlined in the remaining part of verse 13. And so we read first there, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. By serving in the position of God's servant, the deacon gains a position for the people before the people of God. And so I want you to note second, the deacon's position before the church the deacon's position before the church. By serving well, his standing before the church is elevated. That word standing in 1 Timothy 3.13 is a unique word. It's used only twice in all of Scripture. It's used here in 1 Timothy 3.13, but the other place it is found is all the way back in 1 Samuel 5. And so I want you to take a moment and turn back to 1 Samuel 5 from our scripture reading this morning. <clears throat> In 1 Samuel 5... I want to read, reread the first six verses to you. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon, 
And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Verse 5, this is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So at this point, the Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they've brought it into Ashdod, and they placed it next to the statue of Dagon in the temple that was built to honor Dagon. Dagon was a god from the area of Mesopotamia and Syria, beginning in the early Bronze Age, so roughly 3,500 years before Christ. According to Judges 16.23, the Philistines actually adopted Dagon as their primary god. So they brought the ark of the one true god, and they placed it in this temple to the false god. And then look what happens in verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And then look at their response in verse 5. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashadod to this day. If you look very closely, very, very closely, you probably don't see the word standing from 1 Timothy 3.13 in that verse. But it's there. It's that word threshold in 1 Samuel 5.5. 5. The threshold was considered a place of respect. And we see that in scripture because it separated the common places from the holy places. But after defeating their God, the people refused to step on the, dash, the, on the um, threshold. Because at that point, they thought the threshold was to be cursed. What they've done is they've elevated that threshold to something they respected more. Dagon had fallen in one sense, and at the same time, the God of the Bible began to be raised in stature in his standing, as evidenced by in the, the events that follow in 1 Samuel 5, when they see that God's hand is heavy on them and they try to get rid of the ark and they take it elsewhere. There are records that suggest that this practice of not treading on the threshold continued on all the way into the first century after Christ. That's how much that stuck. That word literally means step. As in one who has shown himself worthy takes a step in rank. To not cross the threshold was to not take a step from the common to the holy. In our text in 1 Timothy 3, the deacon who serves well has increased his standing before the church. He has taken a step up in rank. That's what that's trying to say. 
In serving well, he develops a reputation before the people. The deacon's faithfulness is on display to those he is serving. And so he steps up a rung and is standing before the people, and they begin to respect him a little bit more. That's just a natural effect of following and serving the Lord well. It's just a natural blessing that I spoke of earlier that God has purposed to happen when we follow him. And so as the deacon serves well, he becomes better or more well-respected by the people. There's a consequence to that. It also enables him to serve better. So if he serves well, he gains their respect, and then he can serve better. Because as he gains respect from the people, the people begin to trust him more. And that means that they will entrust him with more of their lives. The people will begin to open more, up more of their lives to the deacon, entrusting their care into his hands, and enabling him then to perform his job better, his calling. It's just like that principle, he who is faithful in a little will be entrusted with more. We see that with Joseph. Sold into slavery, his position was very low. But his character was such that he became trusted and he was given more responsibility. Eventually, he even overcame some false accusations that were made against his reputation. And so Joseph, by his reputation of faithfulness, was trusted with more and more until eventually he's placed into this position of God's choosing so that he can better serve God. That's what we see taking place. At the same time, the opposite is also true. A deacon who fails to serve well will lower his standing before the people, and he will lose the people's confidence, and it will hinder his ability to be able to serve and fulfill his ministry as a deacon. The deacon, recognizing his position before God, serves well, raising his standing before the church so that he may be better used by God. What's interesting about this passage about the deacon is that deacons' position before God not only gains them a standing with those inside the church, but it also gains them a standing with those outside the church. And so if you look at the rest of 1 Timothy 3.13, it says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So the deacon's position before God is that of a servant. And then having served well, he gains a position before the church. He gains that higher standing. But I want you to note third, now the deacon's position before the world. The deacon's position before the world. When he's commenting on this verse, E.M. Blakelock traces the deviation from qualified leadership all the way back to the 1960s. And in doing that, he says this. The tragedy of the 60s was the easy victory of a small band of ironclass, one over churchmen of feeble faith, always ready to sell the pass in the weak belief that they can stop somewhere in the foothills. People talked easily out of all firm conviction and to busy learning from their enemies to be of any use of those who hope to be their friends. No one should function in the pulpit or in the officer's chair, save men of sturdy faith and mastering conviction. Blakelock calls out those who have compromised on qualifications for leadership as he goes on. 
And what he says is that instead of ascending the mountain and instead of traversing over it, they've sold off that pass and they've settled in the foothills. It's like saying that White Pass, if it were the only way to get over to the other side of Washington State, but once people got to that pass, they sell it off for a lowball offer. And instead, they're content to settle in Packwood. Packwood might be a nice enough place. It may be pleasurable for a time. But it misses out that if you had gone over the pass, not only does the rest of Washington State open up to you, but then the rest of the nation opens up. And before you are more opportunities. It's short-sighted is what it is, failing to capture all that is possible. That's what Blakelock is suggesting that those in the church have done in leadership. Saying instead, that last part of that, ver- that quote, no one should function in the pulpit's o- pulpit or officer's chair save men of sturdy faith and mastering conviction. These qualifications are there for a reason. We've seen this in the previous verses. The one qualified for leadership is the one who already has a strong faith. We see that in elder and deacon, actually. But look what happens according to this verse. He may have a strong faith, and thus he's qualified for leadership. But according to verse 13, his faith actually grows. Literally, what this means when it says that he has a great confidence, it means to say it well. A person of great confidence or of great faith is emboldened to speak the truth and speak it well. Paul uses that same word, same phrase, at several points. With the Corinthians, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And to Philemon, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, speaking to Philemon. In each case, Paul speaks of his hope in Christ and how that hope has given him this boldness, this great confidence to speak of the things in Christ. In one instance, he speaks of his confidence in declaring the truth of God and sharing the gospel. But then in the other instance, he actually speaks of his willingness to boldly command believers, in this case Philemon, to walk in a manner that is consistent with their faith in Christ. But the point of both of those is that in both cases, though his confidence causes him not to declare what he wants to declare, it causes him to declare only those things that are consistent with God's will. Hence that qualifier in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. For deacons, their service for God doesn't produce a greater confidence in themselves. It produces a greater confidence in God. And such a confidence then emboldens them to speak and gives them the freedom to speak boldly. There's a biblical truth that should be happening. The more one serves in the faith, the more bold one becomes in the faith. Evangelism serves as a great example of this. People's number one reason for not sharing the gospel is, well, they're just not comfortable. They... They don't feel competent enough. But then you ask them, what are you learning to doing to learn and to grow, to become more comfortable, to become more competent? And the answer you receive is, well, nothing. They weren't comfortable sharing, but they're not doing anything to become more comfortable. 
but ask someone who is comfortable sharing. And what you will learn from them is they got comfortable by doing. The more evangelism they do, the more confidence they have in boldly proclaiming. It's kind of what we see in our text. The deacon who serves well gains the confidence in the faith to boldly speak out for the faith. I think there's an actual reason for this. I think it's because the more one serves, the more convinced, convicted, and committed they become. They are more convinced that God's word is true and that God's way is right. They become more convicted about the need to live it out. And they become more committed in doing so. And I think we have a tremendous example of this in scripture. Back in Acts chapter 6, we spent some time just reading there, Acts 6, 1 through 6. That becomes the text again where the elders, or in that case the apostles, chose the seven men to serve as deacons. <clears throat> Who is among those seven? Stephen. And what happens to Stephen in the next chapters? Eventually he's martyred for his faith. Look what happens. Verse 5 says that Stephen is a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So he's already known for his faith. Thus, he's qualified to serve. But upon being chosen and after serving for a time, his confidence seems to increase <clears throat> so that he begins to speak more boldly the things of Christ. 1 Timothy 3.13, For those who serve well as deacons gain a great confidence, meaning they declare in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Stephen's proof of this verse coming to fruition he was full of faith, began to serve, and gained a great confidence in the faith to the point of boldly proclaiming Christ. Remember that phrase, great confidence, means to say it well. A deacon who has served well will say the things of the faith well. That's what Stephen does. And we have a record of how well he said it in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53 explain or show and tell us what Stephen said, which was the whole plan and the whole counsel of God. He said it well. But Acts 6.10 actually offers a summation of Stephen's word. And, and Luke records that the people could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. The more one serves, the bolder one becomes. <laughs> For the deacon who serves well, he gains a standing to declare the things of God to the world. And so his position before God actually has given him a position before the world. Our God is good. Our God is gracious. <clears throat> he is kind. That goodness, that graciousness, that kindness, it is displayed in the systems that God has put into place. All that the Lord is, is displayed in all that the Lord has created. Who he is is not just displayed in creation, meaning trees, mountains, skies, all of that, but it is displayed in the institutions he has created as well. So when we look at like the design of the culture, the structure of family, and the influence of the church, we should see who God is. We should look upon those and see that the Lord is all-wise. We should look upon those and see that the Lord is all-powerful. And we should look upon those to see that the Lord is all-perfect. So in those institutions, culture, family, structure, or church, 
we see characteristics like his goodness and his kindness and his graciousness because when we follow his will and allow those things to function as he intended, out of them flow God's character. Out of them then flow blessings from the Lord. This morning we see that in the institution of the church and the role of deacons. When they fulfill their position before God, they gain a standing before the people of the church and before the people of the world. By serving well, deacons will find themselves on the receiving end of God's blessings. According to God's purposes, deacons serve an integral role for the church, fulfilling a practical function, and in doing so, they free up the elders of the church to fulfill their function in the church, which is to shepherd the people. Yet the deacon is largely overlooked in God's plan. Some consider them a lesser role, suggesting their influence isn't as critical as elders. Some consider them unnecessary, so some churches just do away with them. The result is a forgotten leader of the church. But that's not without consequences, because to deny the deacon's rightful place is to deny God's plan. It suggests that the Lord's structure of the church was insufficient and inadequate, and that man really has a better grasp of what God's church should be than what God does. To deny the deacon's rightful place is also to deny God's gifting and calling. Second Timothy chapter 1, it tells us that God has called people according to his own purposes. First Corinthians, of course, says he has gifted and equipped people, and we see that in Ephesians 4 as well. It is he who equips individuals with specific gifts and then calls them to use those gifts according to his purpose. The underappreciation of the role of deacon it not only denies that fact that God gifts people, but it also denies those people with those gifts the opportunity to use them. And finally, to deny the deacon a rightful place is to deny God's rewards. It prevents those who he has called to function in that capacity the opportunity to receive the blessings that we just talked about. It prevents them from gaining the good standing for themselves and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. When we do God's will, when we engage in God's work God's way, we find ourselves on the undeserving end of God's favor. Let's pray. Father God, in recent months we've spoken much of your perfection because we see it on display we see it on display in the way you've ordered society the way you've ordered creation creating order out of chaos lord were it not for your hand that would not be the case there would continue be continued disorder and so father we give you great praise in all that you've done in that lord father we give you great praise that by it we can see your character come through it all as well. That by looking at what you've instituted in life, Lord, that we can see who you are. Father, I pray that that would cause us then to call out and to cry out to you even more. That we would see your graciousness, your perfection, your kindness, all, all your characteristics, that we would see those on display in what you've created. And Father, may that cause us then to want to know you more. May that cause us to want to walk in your way more, doing your work your way, because in that, you have orchestrated blessing, Lord. 
And so, Father, we give you thanks for who you are and what you've done in that. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.